Well, good morning. Welcome to Hillside. If uh, I haven't met you before, or if you're new today, my name is Robbie. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I would love for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses um, 17 through 20 today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, maybe you can turn on your Bible on your phone, um, but I would love for you to be able to follow along with us. Um, and while you're getting there, um, I would love to just celebrate with you guys all that's happened at Hillside over the course of the last month. I know there are many things that are coming up. You heard today about our annual meeting that's happening on May 15th. I would encourage you to be at that. Um, but there are things that have happened already, and I don't want to move on too quickly um, from how exciting things are and what has happened. Last week we did City Sweep, and I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but 90 plus volunteers went out across the city and did, I think it was 12 projects at one time, but maybe it ended up being 15 different projects. I don't know, but I just think that's really neat that 90 plus people went out and served in our community um, and helped people out. Um, in addition to that, last week we did a barbecue right after that from five to seven, and some people said, that's insane. Why would you do that? And I would agree. That's insane. Why would we do that? But we had I we ordered 150 hot dogs and 150 hamburgers and um, we never counted all the people that were here but also Bruce um, Stoft is that how you say your last name is he here um, anyway he um, he brought 10 racks of ribs that he cooked as well and we went through all of that meat and so you know based on estimations I would say we at least had 250 people show up to that thing and that's amazing. That's amazing. It's not amazing because of the numbers. It's amazing because um, people from our community came to the church and were just loved and cared for. And um, I, I'm just so proud of our people um, for that. And then also this week, we finished up our kids community for the season, which is Awana. Um, and that's incredible. The kids were here all school year learning verses and um, they got awards this week and all of that kind of stuff, but none of all of the things that happened would happen without you guys being faithful givers or without you guys being faithful volunteers. Um, there were so many people, even in Awana, that we celebrated this week that have served for 15 years, 20 years, 23 years, I mean, a long time serving our community, serving our children, and for God's glory. And I just want our church to be aware that there's always something happening, and it is always exciting, and it is always for God's glory, and the ultimate goal would be that people would know Christ. Um, and so <clears throat> I just wanted to hit on those things, because maybe some of you are unaware, and sometimes it does feel like, well, we just meet on Sunday mornings, but man, if that was it, I would be well-rested, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> there's so much happening, and um, and it's not just to be busy. It's because God is good and we want people to know it. And so um, I also want to mention to you before we get going that um, next week, because it didn't make our announcement real, next week um, the youth are doing a bake sale. Um, and I would love for you guys to bring your money for that. It's going to help send them to Life Conference, which is a conference that the Christian Missionary Alliance puts on for high school kids. Um, they are going to Orlando, and they're going to hear from awesome speakers. They're going to be challenged, and it could be a formational time in their lives. And so they're selling baked, good next week, baked goods next week. 
um, in order to help go to that conference. They will take cash or check. We don't do Apple Pay or um, the Mark of the Beast or any of that kind of stuff. It, um, why did I say that? <clears throat> I was trying to think of other things. Cash or check, and uh, that is next week. Maybe that'll help you remember it next week. The other thing that maybe some of you dads need to be aware of is next week is Mother's Day, so you're welcome. Um, and if you forget, buy some baked goods, okay? So this week we're continuing in our series entitled Unworldly for the World. And the idea is this, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Christ, then you are part of a kingdom that is different. You are part of a different kingdom. Jesus has called you into his kingdom. It's God's kingdom, but we still live in this world. We're still a part of this world, and so Jesus is showing his disciples, he's sharing with them in the Sermon on the Mount what life in his kingdom looks like. It is radically different. He's been saying since the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and you guys have heard it with me, that we are not of this world, we're different. You're different. Our lives as followers of Jesus look different than the lives of the people who do not know God, And, and the reason is we are dependent upon God And because of His grace in our lives, because of what He's doing through us, we have new life, and it looks different. And because of our relationship with Christ and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are radically changed from the inside out. We don't fly under the radar as believers, though, and we are unworldly, and our world will hopefully, because of our unworldly behavior, see God's goodness and praise Him with us. Today we're going to study a passage that is going to serve as actually a very important base point, a really important jumping off point. Hopefully it will give clarity to the rest of what Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 5. And it's actually a really hard passage, um, but it's a necessary one for us to understand um, what Jesus is going to say in the coming weeks. We have uh, six more things that he's going to say in this chapter and this, these verses are really huge for us to be able to understand what he's trying to say. And before we jump in, I want to start this morning with some background on what is happening during Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, when he's sharing these words, he's living and he's speaking in the midst of some very serious misunderstanding about the law in Israel. And I don't mean like the speed limit, I mean the Old Testament law in Israel. Jesus' disciples, they've heard the Old Testament law before, and what that amounts to is the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the Prophets, and the Psalms. It's everything that we have in our Old Testament Bible. And their Jewish lives revolve around the Old Testament law. And in Jesus' time, there was this group of people, and you guys have heard about them, I'm sure, called the Pharisees, and they had a reputation of being the defenders and the protectors of the law of God in Israel. They were set apart as the best of the best in religion, and they are the self-proclaimed people to follow in terms of Old Testament law. And Jesus, though, and we know this from reading the Gospels, he has a very contentious relationship with the Pharisees. We know that Jesus at this point in his ministry has already criticized the scribes and the Pharisees for only practicing God's law externally. It, it, It was a show for them. It's not driven by a relationship or love, and so Jesus has criticized them. And what we need to know at this point in our study is that Jesus teaches differently than the religious leaders do. 
His teaching so far in Matthew chapter 5 has been so different than how the, te- the Pharisees teach. Jesus is radical. Jesus is about what's happening in our hearts. And we also need to know, and we probably do most of us, that up to this point, Jesus hasn't ex- has explained his new kingdom and what his new kingdom looks like, this radical way of life for his disciples. But while he's explaining all of this, he hasn't even referenced one time the law of the Old Testament. Not one time. And that's a big deal to the Pharisees because they're about the law of the Old Testament, right? And so the people in Israel, they revolve their lives around this law or the Old Testament. And because of this, the Pharisees are annoyed at this homeless teacher named Jesus. What is his problem? The Pharisees believe that the people should know that Jesus doesn't care about the law in their mind. And so the people present during Jesus' teaching, probably even including his disciples at, at this time, could potentially be believing this about Jesus. Because they know that he's teaching this radical new kingdom, because he hasn't mentioned the law, they may believe this. They may think that Jesus is making a decisive break from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is starting his own new thing, and he's claiming authority that he shouldn't have. Some have concluded that Jesus is in direct opposition to the law and the prophets because the Pharisees were the perfect keepers of of those laws and they struggle with Jesus. And so the natural questions for the people that are with Jesus right now are these questions. Is Jesus opposed to the Old Testament? Is Jesus opposed to the law set up by God for his people? Has Jesus come to change the scriptures and make this brand new thing altogether? And you might think, okay, well, those are actually some questions that potentially you've had. These aren't old, or these aren't new questions, but oftentimes in our society, we have similar questions. It's a little bit different for people in our day, but some would say this, look, Jesus has done away with the law. Jesus has brought in a reign of some sort of relationship with God that has no call to obedience. I'm sure you guys have heard about this form of Christianity. In fact, if you're a Christian today and you speak about obedience or you speak about following God's commands, then you are very likely to be called a legalist. And often we give the impression that obedience and grace are mutually exclusive things. When we hear the word law and obedience, and maybe you're already feeling this right now, we begin to kind of cringe. Because we don't want to be called Pharisees. And so for us, we might ask the exact same questions that people were asking in Jesus' day, and and there are questions like this. Didn't Jesus come to get rid of the law? Didn't Jesus come to make the law unnecessary? What does Jesus say to these questions? What does he say to these questions that he knows are in our hearts and he knows are in the hearts of the people that he's speaking to on the Sermon on the Mount? What does he say to you and me who might have these questions, well, he starts by saying this in verses 17 through 18. He says, here's my relationship to God's law. I want to show you my relationship to God's law. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, they say this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What 
does Jesus say is his relationship to the Old Testament law? He says this, You've seen me do some amazing things already. You have heard me call you to a deeper walk with me. I'm calling you to this new thing called a kingdom. It's radical. You've heard me say that the kingdom of God is at hand, and I'm preaching you this gospel, but do not think that I came to change the law or to abolish it. He starts verse 17 with these three words, do not think. What does this tell us? Well, it, it tells us that people were thinking, or maybe starting to think, that Jesus came to abolish the law. This, this tells us that these people were beginning to think that Jesus would not uphold the law and the prophets. What is the law and the prophets? I've already said it to you guys, but it's the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It is um, God's Ten Commandments. It is uh, the Psalms. It's the prophets. It is how God taught His people how to relate to Him a perfect and holy God. And Jesus says to his followers, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says, I'm not anti the law and I'm not anti the prophets. In fact, all of those things find their fulfillment in me. And I want you to hear me saying this. Jesus is telling his people, the intention of the law is and always has been to point to me. Don't get rid of it. Even now in your modern day, it exists to point to me. Jesus says, I didn't come to tear apart or to dismantle the Old Testament. How much does Jesus affirm the authority of God's written law? Well, look at verse 18. It says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. What is Jesus saying in verse 18? He's in Jesus' language, it's, it's really compelling. He's saying that the smallest letter, which in the Hebrew alphabet is called the Yod, Y-O-D, the smallest letter, it's like an apostrophe in the Hebrew alphabet. He's saying the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen, a dot, matter to me. He's going to the most extreme extent possible here to tell his listeners that not one of the more, six, more than 66,000 yods or the innumerable seraphs will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. And we might put it this way in our language, until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot of an I and not one cross of a T will fail from God's written law until it is all fulfilled. And this is important because what Jesus is teaching here, and I really want you to hear me on this, is he's teaching us the immutability and the inspiration of the scriptures. He's not saying, he's not only saying that the Old Testament contains the truth or that it becomes the truth, he is saying that scripture cannot be broken. Holy Scripture and its teaching will not change. Over and over, Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he uses the perfect tense when he does. He will say something like this, it is written, which actually means this in the Hebrew. It is written, it, will, it has always been written, and it will always be written. Jesus says the scriptures are more enduring than the universe. And this is important because none of what Jesus has said up to this point, or will say after this, is him abolishing any word of God's law. 
He's not relaxing. He's not teaching anyone to relax any of God's commands. Instead, what he's doing is he is living out and teaching others to live out what these very rules look like. And while he's dining with sinners, which we can read about in the Gospels, and while he's talking with women, which was very taboo in his day, or when he's healing on the Sabbath, and even when he's overturning greedy money changers' tables in the temples, None of those things are deviations of God's word. Instead, those are actions that accord with the highest principles of God's law. And so Jesus affirmed the enduring authority of God's word. And I wanted to start with verse 18 because it affirms the assertion that Jesus actually makes of himself in verse 17, which says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember that people were ready in Jesus' time to say that he was setting up a new standard by which to live. People were ready to say that Jesus came to set aside the old law. And we do this in our culture too, and people have tried to do this for centuries. We read the Bible out of context, and in the next number of verses that we're going to study in the coming weeks, we're going to see Jesus say something like this. He's going to say, you have heard that it was said in days of old. Then he's going to say it, what it was, and then he's going to say, but I say to you. And what happens to us and what's going to happen to Jesus's people, if they're not careful, is that they read those words out of context and they assume that Jesus is setting the Old Testament aside and he's instituting a new law in its place. But we can't think that. He is not changing the law. We have to know that this is not true. How can we know this? Well, look at verse 18. It says, until heaven and earth pass away, nothing of even the most minute portions of God's word will pass until all of it is fulfilled. And because of that, Jesus urges us not to think that he came to abolish the law or to annul it in any way. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the principles of righteousness set forth in the Old Testament. I came to establish them and to fulfill those principles. Jesus' relationship to God's law is one of fulfillment. And the question that comes to mind then is this, how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, let me share with you real quick three ways that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. The first way is this. He fulfills it prophetically. In the Old Testament, there are many, many prophecies of Jesus. Jesus' birthplace is prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus' crucifixion is prophesied in Psalm 22. In fact, the entire Old Testament has a prophetic function, and the fulfillment of the prophecies are found in Jesus Christ. Years ago, before uh, we had kids, Julianne and I went to Seattle to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have any of you guys ever seen those? You've heard of them anyway. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, are, they're amazing, but I remember staring at one in this case in Seattle that was a psalm, and it was translated in front of me, and it was a prophecy of Jesus Christ dated before Jesus ever walked on the earth. It, that's amazing. That's incredible. Jesus fulfills the messianic predictions of the Old Testament, and we would need an entire sermon series to talk about all of those messianic predictions, but prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus also fulfilled the law and the prophets 
sacrificially, the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to Jesus. When people sinned in the Old Testament, they had to offer a sacrificial or a sacrifice of an animal or blood. Jesus fulfilled the law by dying on the cross and satisfying the demands of the law against those who would believe in him. Jesus fulfilled what the sacrificial or the ceremonial system had pointed to. And then a third way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law is he does it morally. Jesus perfectly kept all of the commands of the Old Testament. If you looked in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it tells us that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the law and he fulfilled all of it perfectly by the way he lived his sinless life. He lived perfectly. And it's important for you and I to see this this morning. It's important for Jesus' hearers to hear this because the radical righteousness that Christ lived and taught, including the Beatitudes, including being salt and light, and all that he is going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, all of the ways that he is calling his disciples, all of the ways that he's calling you and me, that radical life is not out of line with the Old Testament. Christ's righteousness is radical Not because it's new. It's radical because he lived out the call of God in the law. The law isn't abolished. It still exists. And the hope for all of us is Jesus being the fulfiller of it. He moves on then in verses 19 and 20. And and you and I might expect him at this point to say, because I am fulfilling the law, Because I am the fulfillment of the law, now you can live life like there is no law. Because I'm the one that's taking care of all of the issues of the law, now you can live the way you would like to. But he actually increases the pressure and he says, this should be your relationship to the law as my disciples. He says this, a disciple's relationships to God's law is stated in verses 19 through 20 and it says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Jesus says this to his followers, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of even the scribes and the Pharisees. Or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes. That seems harsh. It's it's hard for us to hear because he's just come and said, I fulfill the law. I'm going to be the fulfiller of the law. And your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. You'd sort of expect a different statement there and it's hard for us to hear it's shocking for us to hear but in jesus's day it was even harder for his listeners to hear because a popular uh, cultural statement in jesus's day a jewish saying was this if only two men make it into heaven one would be a scribe and the other would be a pharisee the scribes were the scholars who studied and interpreted and commented endlessly upon the 613 specific commandments in the Old Testament law. They were the ones with the doctorate of ministry. 
The word Pharisee literally means separated ones. And for us, we look at the scribes and we look at the Pharisees in this sort of humorous light and we trash them continually when we talk about them. And when we want to call each other names in the Christian world, we say you're a modern day Pharisee. But um, for us, they are the worst, most oppressive religious nuts. But in Jesus's audience, they were the spiritual giants of their day. People in Jesus's culture couldn't imagine anyone who was more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee. And so what is Jesus saying here in verses 19 and 20? This is really, really important for us as we work our way through this series and make our way deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying God is concerned with obedience to His law. But He seeks an obedience from us that goes way past our external behaviors and hits the heart, comes from the heart. I want you guys to hear me really clearly on this, and you can search the Gospels if you don't believe me. Jesus never told the Pharisees that they cared too much about the law. Never. Their problem wasn't that they loved God's law. The law was not the problem. Jesus is saying here that His kingdom requires a standard of righteousness higher than external actions. In other words, the righteous requirement for Jesus' kingdom exceeds that of the legalist to whom he is speaking. Jesus is saying, the standards for my kingdom are higher than any standards you guys might think you are meeting. And this is an astonishing statement to these people. Jesus is upping the reality of obedience in his kingdom. And sometimes we get the sense, I think, in our culture that Jesus doesn't care about obedience. The statement by Jesus does not sound like a man who wants to oppose grace to obedience. Jesus never sets our faith in him against obedience to him. Jesus does not set God's Old Testament standards against love. Jesus is deadly serious about obedience. And Jesus' diagnosis of the Pharisees in this section is not that they care too much about God's law, but that they actually don't care at all. Jesus is saying to the people listening that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees because they're only partial keepers. They're external rule followers. They are man-pleasers. They are prideful. And what Jesus is doing here is He is setting us up to understand that His call to obedience is utterly different from external behavioral modification. This is going to help explain what Jesus is going to say in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, but He's not giving a new law. He is calling for a level of obedience to the law that goes past the mere letter of the law into the very spirit of God's law. The Pharisees' righteousness doesn't go past their external behavior and it is not in their hearts and Jesus is not scrapping the Old Testament law. Jesus never came to abolish the law. Jesus came to completely fulfill it. And because of His complete fulfillment of that law, His followers respond to it with a deeper obedience that comes from their hearts. And so today what Jesus is saying is that righteousness, the righteousness that God demands, is supremely radical. And my kingdom is more than external modification. It is heart change. Jesus is not going to allow for the relaxing of the Old Testament law and His call is immeasurably higher than the call of the Pharisees' concept of righteousness. 
I kind of wonder if Jesus' words in this passage today made the people that were standing there on the mountain sort of confused. Because so far in their life, they had seen that the best way to follow God was the way the Pharisees did it. And I kind of wonder for us if Jesus could leave us wondering, or maybe even the way I'm preaching this, leave us wondering, what, what, is, what is this? If Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, and if he says that my righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, then how am I ever going to measure up? What is the solution to my problem? What is the good news in these four verses? And remember again that so much of this section is intended to help us have clarity for the following sections. But for today, I think, I really do believe that there is great encouragement for us here in this passage. And I want you to hear me so clearly on this, that Jesus' inflexibility, his hard, unbending words are actually the most gracious words that we could ever hear. And you might think that I'm nuts for saying this, but just stick with me for a minute. But when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing is he is speaking as kindly as he has ever spoken to anyone. How? Why? Because he's explaining to you and to me, and he's explaining to those people listening to him in the most dramatic terms that the law is good because it shows you and it shows me that we just don't have what it takes. It shows us that our righteousness will never be enough. It shows the Pharisees that they're not enough. And because of that tr truth, salvation is impossible for you to achieve on your own. Those are gracious words. You cannot be saved by your following of the law. You will fall short. The external righteousness of the Pharisees isn't enough because right, the righteousness that God demands cannot come to you apart from Jesus himself. And this is the key to understanding all of it that God calls us to, to be kingdom people. And this is the really, really good news because what it does when we read this section is it takes us back to ground zero of the very first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize they cannot make it on their own, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the question this morning is this, do you understand and acknowledge that there is no way but by the grace of God? If so, then you and I also need to see that Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, these are our hope. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is our hope. Because Christ didn't come to say that obedience doesn't matter. He never said that. He came to do what we could never do. He fulfilled the law for us. His righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And because he fulfilled the law, then he gives us a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is good news. And that comes by faith in Jesus alone. The worship team can come on up. 
There's one last thing that we as believers need to understand this morning, and that is this. If you're a follower of Christ, once you understand the principle that you cannot save yourself by the law, once you understand that you are saved by grace through faith, then we need to see what Jesus is saying to us as his followers this morning. And that is this. By the grace of God and the residence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you and I can begin to obey the law which God created you and me to keep in the first place. It is only through the grace of God that we can begin to be who God intended us to be and to do the things that God intended us to do. It is only by the grace of God that we can be unworldly for the world, for God's glory. And this is what Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4 argues. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Today, Jesus makes it clear that when the law is rightly understood, it's not opposed to the gospel. It's not opposed to the gospel. The gospel purpose is that we, once we are changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, would be conformed to God's image. We will be radical. There will be heart-level change, and we will be kingdom people. We will be unworldly for God's glory and for the world's good, and when the gospel takes hold of our lives, we will actually delight in God's commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2-3 through three says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Let me finish this morning with a question for us. Where, where is your heart? Are you externally obeying, but internally begrudging God's commandments? Or with the followers of Jesus, who is our fulfillment? Are you delighting in obedience to God and wanting more than anything else to be conformed to His image and to be exalted not in yourself, but in His righteousness and in His sanctifying work? Again, like it always is, the invitation from Jesus today is not a life of licentiousness. It's an invitation into joy. It's an invitation into obedience. And because of that, that's an invitation into being a part of his kingdom and being kingdom people. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word again. Lord, it's a hard text and somewhat confusing, but... um, God, we're just so grateful that you sent your son to be the fulfillment of the law and and even encouraged, Lord, that you don't abolish the law with that, but that you fulfill it through our faith in Jesus Christ and, and then give us the power and the strength to operate in obedience, to follow your calling, to be made into your image. We love you. Thank you so much for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to take communion together. You probably saw it on your chairs. And if you would take out 
the little uh, wafer piece that's on the top of your um, communion. I should should have started by saying that um, everyone is in, uh, invited to take communion, but we do ask this. <clears throat> if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, would you please abstain from taking communion with us? Because it's a meaningful act. This is we take as a representation of Christ's body and his blood, and we say, Lord, thanks for what you did on the cross for us. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, it's not awkward. Just don't take it. You don't have to eat it. It's not that delicious anyway. We're using it as a representation of what Christ did. But as you take out your bread this morning, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 24. It says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread like this, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what do we remember today as we take this wafer? I want you to remember the truth from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. When we take this today, we are thanking Jesus for being the fulfillment of the requirement that was on our life. The fulfillment of the requirement that was on our life. Jesus fulfilled the law that we could not. And because of that, we get to have righteousness credited to us by his broken body on the cross. He fulfilled the law by leading a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law's demands against us by dying for us. Let's partake of this bread together. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, it says, In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What do we remember this morning as we take this cup? Well, we remember that by Jesus' shed blood, by Jesus' fulfilling the demands of the sacrificial law, we're saved. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake He made Him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As we partake this morning together, let's thank Jesus for fulfilling the law on our behalf. Let's partake together.